you have your Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is where we uh, have started. We started a new series in 1 Corinthians just a couple weeks ago. We will be in this for, for quite a while, um, and I'm excited about it. Uh, what a beautiful book it is, a letter written to a church full of a lot of problems, uh, a church that could absolutely resonate with the song that we just said that says, our sins, they are many, uh, but his mercy is more. And so uh, there's so much going on in this church. And uh, we're just working our way through this, discovering how the gospel news of Jesus speaks to every area of life, not only as individuals, but as a family, as a church family and as a community. And so today we find ourselves in verse 10, uh, 10 through 17. I'm going to go ahead and read that section for us, and then we'll jump on in this morning. God's word says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, it's a plural, plural word, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to teach us and guide us today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your written word. We thank you that you are the living word. We thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us. God, what an overwhelming reality this morning that we've been reminded of even through singing that our sins, they are many. We often try to deceive ourselves into thinking, well, they're not as, they're not as many as others I see. But Lord, when we stand before you, we realize our sins, they are abundant. They are seemingly never ending. They are deeper than we ever thought they are. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected and paid the price for our sins so that we may now simultaneously confess that your mercy is more, that there is no amount of sin that can outsin the reach of your grace. And so, Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, as we talk about this idea of divisions among your people, Lord, would you, would you help us? Would you be our teacher, Lord? I I know that there are many of us here this morning that need to be convicted by your Spirit gently. There are others of us here this morning, Lord, that need to be encouraged by your Spirit and by your Word. But Lord, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes that we might see Christ, that we might see the goodness of the Gospel, and that we might leave here worshiping our Savior Jesus. So would you help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the earliest church fathers, church theologians, is a man named Tertullian. 
Uh, he was an African church father um, from the very tip of Northern Africa uh, in a place called Carthage. And Carthage actually became a Roman colony, much like the city of Corinth was. Um, and in the second century, Tertullian was writing about the unity of Christians. And he was comparing the unity of Christians to the divisive culture in which they lived. And listen to what Tertullian said. He said, look, says those who don't believe, how the Christians love one another. For those who don't believe hate one another. And how the Christians are ready to die for each other. For those who don't believe are readier to cut one another's throats. But we Christians look upon ourselves as one body, informed as it were by one soul, and being thus incorporated by love. Now, that praise of church unity, I imagine, feels like a far cry from our modern day experience of church. Yes? Almost no one that I know would describe the state of the church with those words, with that glowing praise of how united it is and how ready it is to die for one another. Now, especially we would not tend to describe the church like that post-2020. 2020 brought about what well, maybe the most divided time we've ever seen, not just in our world or in our nation, but even within our churches among God's people. All I have to do is just say a few words and you will be reminded, maybe even pricked a little bit in the heart of, ugh. Just a few words I could say here. I could say something like masks, COVID mandates, vaccines, woke, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. I mean, I'll just say a few words and all of you feel like, uh-oh, you know, you don't, don't talk about those things because well, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everybody's going to start going to their corners and we're going to feel really divided because we've all, we all experienced this in the last couple of years. And we know this to be true. 2020 didn't so much actually divide us. It more just revealed that there was already division there. Unity as the people of God does not seem to be our experience lately. And division has been a trusted tool of God's enemy, Satan, for a long, long time. Since the beginning of time, division has been a weapon that Satan has wielded against God's people. And frankly, if we're honest, he doesn't have to force it down our throats very often because many of us have an acquired taste for it. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves his people, is committed to a new way. God himself is one that unites every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to himself. And God himself is the one who is committed to not just uniting everyone to himself, but uniting his people to one another across every boundary and border and opinion and background. This is the work that God does. It's what Paul describes in the section we looked at last week at the very end of it in verse nine. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. And it's because of God's commitment to this new way of unity that Paul urges this Corinthian church as he opens this letter with these words in verse 10. I appeal to you 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now let me ask you, do you even believe that what Paul describes and what Tertullian described is even possible for the church? Do you even think that that kind of unity is even possible? I think many of us have grown cynical and think where we've been, what's happened at this point, that's a pipe dream. But how, however we answer that question, if we answer it honestly, says something about what we believe about the power of the gospel. Do we believe that the good news of Jesus Christ is actually powerful enough to bridge those kinds of divides? Do we believe that Jesus Christ, the almighty God, is strong enough, powerful enough to take people who have been divided and broken and hated each other and bring them into a family where they love and sacrifice for one another? Do we actually believe that that's possible? We should, but I think if we're honest, many of us practically think, I don't know what that it is. And that says something about what we believe about Jesus and his good news. But as Paul opens this letter, he believes that unity like this is possible through the gospel, which is why he says, I appeal to you. I urge you to be united. And I come to you and I make this appeal by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not in the name of goodwill, not in the name of... Um, simply being a good example, not in the name of, hey, it just goes better when you do this, but by the name of Jesus Christ, would you be united to one another? A re very relevant message for us today where we stand. As we open the pages on this book, we see a church that's really divided. He says that there's been a, it's been reported to him that there is quarreling among you. Now, in a lot of the commentators are kind of there's not a lot of information about how Paul got this message that there was quarreling and fighting among this church, but there's a lot that say that the way that the message got to Paul was even through unbelievers. That unbelievers were looking at the church and saying, they can't figure it out. They're, they're, they're divided, and that message got to Paul. And so Paul writes, and he says, I hear that there's quarreling among you, which in the original languages, is, the, is a word that literally means this, that you, you delight, you seem to desire to divide. You have an affection for dispute, is most literally what this word means. That you are claiming to be God's people who love the Lord and love one another, and yet you have an affection for dispute. How could that be so? Well, we talked about this a lot last week, a cultural marker of the city of Corinth was competitive individualism. Everyone was competing for status and rank and using whatever means necessary they could. And so many had been discipled and brought up into this culture of it's all about status, it's all about using my education, my background, my family, my ethnicity, my reputation, whatever it may be, to gain a, le a leg up on others. And so for some, the church became just another arena to compete for status. Which is why they have an affection for disputes. Paul tells us the situation here. He says, what I mean is this in verse 12. Each one of you says something along these lines. I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, 
I follow Cephas. I, I follow Christ. Everyone's divided on who they're really following. Now, what was happening in this church is the Christians were lining up behind specific Christian leaders. Right? Specific Christian leaders would be leading in their church or they would be coming to town from other areas. And then these Christians would start lining up behind their favorite one. And they would start bragging about, well, this one has the superior gifts. Or this one's really gifted in their speaking ability and in their rhetoric. So I follow this person. This guy's a better preacher. Paul, Paul's the better preacher, so he's the one that I follow. Oh, well, well, Apollos is the better writer. He's the one that I follow. Well, Cephas is the, is the wittier one. He's, he's the more persuasive one. He's the one that I follow. And what they were doing is they were just taking Corinth culture and bringing it right into the church because Corinth was like this. This is how you operated in this culture and in, the, in this city. This is how people got famous and how they got popular. Entertainers got exalted because of their wisdom, because of their eloquence or the skill that they brought to their message. Different religious teachers that would come to town and they would speak, the ones that grew popular, it wasn't because their message was so good, it was because their gifts were so impressive. They were so eloquent. They could, they could weave a speech together that moved all of your emotions and convinced you or made you laugh or made you cry or just impressed you with how educated they were. It was the same even, even in the education world. The educational model was one of allegiance to a specific teacher. And once you, were, you pledged allegiance to a specific teacher, well, now you, were, you had a competitive spirit with all the other rival teachers because you belonged to this one. And so not only do you follow this one with devotion, but you mock all the others because yours is the best. There was even a culture em emphasis on starting business and being patrons with gifted elite folk. This is how Corinth operated. And so what these Christians were doing is they're taking Corinthian culture, Corinthian practice, and stamping Christianity on top of it. And saying, this is how it's going to work in the church too. We'll find our favorite teachers, the ones with the best giftings, ones that are most impressive, and we'll say, I am of this person. And that's most literally what it means I belong to this person. I pledge my devotion to following and being of this person. It's important to note, we don't get any sense that these divisions are theological divisions. We don't get any sense from this book that, that the reason why they're saying, well, I follow this person and I follow this person has anything to do with theology. Because all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, Paul is drawing lines for theology. He's saying, this is, this is true Christianity. Things outside of this are not. He says that sometimes we need to draw theological lines and say, if you are going to confess this, then we do need to divide because theology and truth are that important. But we don't get any sense that that's why they're dividing in this church. They're dividing over their preferences. And as Paul does this, there's good reason to believe that he's not actually calling out specific groups that are saying this, but that he's kind of creating caricatures. As to say, like, some of you do this, and let me just kind of create what this world looks like. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. He's probably creating these caricatures for them to show them that their behavior is like children. Their behavior is like children dependent on parents. 
because they're saying, well, I am of so-and-so, as if I am the offspring of so-and-so, as if they are my authority, they are my teacher, they are the one that I submit to and pledge my allegiance to and owe everything to. They are the one that provides for me. And Paul is saying, you are acting like children, dependent on their parents in the way that you talk about these leaders. And he says the whole spirit of the thing is wrong. It's sinful. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous, first off, to the individuals. We could say the same thing to us today because this spirit hasn't gone away. There are many of us within the church that would line up behind our favorite leaders. Sure, we might do it culturally, but we even do it within the sphere of Christianity to where we say, these are, these are the spiritual leaders that I am a part of, the ones that I follow. And you become fanboys and fangirls of, of your favorite spiritual leaders. Sometimes it even happens within a church setting, where even within a church, the people have their favorite pastors, their favorite small group leaders, their favorite prayers, their favorite worship leaders of, oh, that's the one I follow. Or our favorite podcasts and pastors and motivational speakers that we listen to. And if somebody comes after your favorite, no longer friends, because you can't trust them and their judgment. This spirit is alive and well today. And it's dangerous, first off, for the individual. It's dangerous for the individual because if your faith in Jesus is mostly about belonging to and following a leader, a pastor, a speaker, or a mentor, you are in dangerous waters. Because what happens when they fail? When? Not if. What happens when they fail? When they disappoint you? There are some that have walked away entirely because a leader let them down. Because their faith was primarily resting in a teacher, a person who told them about the Lord. Christian, you need a Savior that doesn't move when people leave. You need a Savior that doesn't change when you do. You need a Savior and a shepherd and a teacher that can't sin and won't sin even when you do. You need a Savior that can handle every single person in this world letting you down. You need a Savior like that. If that's the Savior and the leader we need, how foolish and dangerous it is for us to say, well, I am of so-and-so. It's foolish and it's dangerous. It's also dangerous to the community because what happens when we start wearing jerseys of other teams? I went to the, the World Series in, I think it was in 2001 at, at, uh, at Angel Stadium. I grew up uh, loving Barry Bonds who played for the San Francisco Giants and I wanted to go see them in the World Series uh, and we were able to go and we went and I wore my Barry Bonds jersey into uh, into Angel Stadium. So it was a San Francisco Giants jersey into Angel Stadium. I thought, surely it will be fine because Angel Stadium doesn't really have all that passionate of fans. Um, so I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be fine. But I was also like, I don't know how, I, I, was, I was in middle school. Uh, and so I was, I was still fairly young and kind of naive. 
And after the game, the, the Giants lost and the, the Angels won and they won the World Series. And I remember walking to the parking lot with my dad. And as we're walking kind of down the ramps in Angel Stadium and getting out to the, towards the parking lot, there's this group of guys, about four guys, all probably 6'2 and above, had too much to drink. They're all wearing Angels gear and they start heckling me and my dad. So much so that it goes from like just being, you know, harmless banter to this is starting to get intense. They're starting to use language that feels threatening. Now we're getting out of the parking lot. They haven't stopped. And it starts to feel very serious where we might be in actual danger because of the jersey that we're wearing. There is something that happens to human beings when we put a jersey on. We transform into people that are competitive and angry Go to any sporting event like this. We, we know this. We've even seen news stories, right? Where just because someone was wearing a jersey from the wrong team, they got sent to the hospital. I think if I had gotten together with my dad and those four other guys in a neutral setting where we weren't wearing any jerseys, nothing would have happened. We probably would have got along just fine. But simply because we were wearing different jerseys, we hated each other and it became dangerous. It can get like that within the church. When we start wearing jerseys, we start saying, well, I follow this person, I'm of this person, and you're of that. Ugh. It becomes dangerous. Dangerous to our spiritual health, dangerous to our friendship, dangerous to our unity in Christ. And Paul says, may it not be so among God's people. The thing is, we know that it's dangerous, but we still do it. Why are we so susceptible to this kind of division? I think if we take a step, step back for a second and ask ourselves why, I think we can see. I think the truth is every single human being is so eager to find something to define us and identify us. We are craving an identity. Human beings are not self-sufficient beings. We are born into this world looking to bond and attach to something besides us, right? When a baby is born into the world, they are searching instinctually and craving to attach themselves to someone else because human beings aren't self-sufficient. From the moment we take our breath, we need someone else and something else. And as we grow up, we crave that more and more and more, not just physically, but spiritually. We are looking for someone and something to attach ourselves to, to define us, to give us meaning and purpose. We're created to need someone else. That's literally how God created us. He created us to need Him. He created us intentionally to not be self-sufficient beings, to need Jesus. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God created us, and then when He did, He put eternity into our hearts as if there was this groove carved into our souls that reminds us we need something to fill it. We were created in God's image for God's glory. That's the purpose we were created. And so we were told over and over again in the scriptures, we literally have been made to have our entire purpose and our identity be tied to Jesus. That's why we were made. And yet, in our sin we say, no, thank you. I'll find it elsewhere. I'll find my identity 
elsewhere, and we, we look for it. We want to identify with a movement or a leader. So we look for a cause, or we look for a political party or a political leader or an ideology because we want to be a part of the movement. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves where we can trust someone and follow them. Or we want to find purpose. Or we want to find the safety and comfort of being accepted by others that also are a part of this thing. We want to find status. Or we want to find rightness. Or we know I'm right and they're wrong. We want to belong. Right? We want to have a people that are our people. We want to have a mission. And we want to have someone or someone's to blame for all the problems in the world. And so we look, we search for wherever we can find that. We'll grasp for anything. We'll, we'll attach ourselves to our church background. Say, well, I am this. I grew up this way. Or we'll attach ourselves to politics. I follow this person. I am of this party. And if everyone would just get on board with this, things would be better. And the real enemy is this other side. Or we attach ourselves to our ethnicity or our race or our income or our sexuality or our gender or to specific teachers or to specific churches or to just identity labels in general. We will look for anything and everything we can get our hands on to say, this is who I am. This is what makes me me. This is what gives me purpose and mission and identity and comfort and safety and a people and it's all pride. It's all pride of placing ourselves at the center of the universe and everything else is oriented around us rather than Jesus Christ being at the center, reconciling all things to himself. It's all pride. And to grab a hold of these things as pillars of our identity ultimately only leads to disputing and dividing. Because ultimately, the longer you wear the jersey, the more you come to hate those that don't. And Paul says to this church and to us, how could you look to anyone or anything else but Jesus? How could you look to anyone or anything else but Jesus? He gives us the solution to our division. He says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What Paul wants to do for us is he wants to highlight our division problem, our sin problem, and then give us the gospel solution. He starts by saying, Is Christ divided? Is it as if Christ could be divvied up and only belong to certain groups? Does this denomination or this type of church, the only one that really has Jesus? Or is it only this leader and when you follow this leader, that's where Jesus is found? But like only most of him because the rest of him is over here. And if you want to get this part of Jesus, you go there and this part of Jesus is over here. Paul says, is Christ divided? That's a rhetorical question. Christ is not divided, and if he's not divided, how could his people be divided? 
Paul's calling us to look and remember the gospel story. The gospel story says this, that every single one of us was cut off from Christ. In our sins, we were far off. We could not be brought near. We were cut off from Christ. We were divided off from him. We could not be a part of him. We could not be one with him. We were cut off from Christ. And yet in the sending of Jesus, Jesus says, I will be cut off. I will be cast out. I will bear the burden of your sins. I will be cut off from my heavenly father so that you could be united to him. So that you could be brought near. Look at what Galatians 3 says. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The only way you and I could be brought into the family of God is for Jesus Christ to be cut off from God the Father in his crucifixion. It's exactly what happens. It's even modeled for us in where Jesus is crucified. Jesus is crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He is treated as an outcast that doesn't belong within the city, doesn't belong within the walls of God's people. In the cross, that's what Jesus is doing. He's being cut off so that we could be united to God the Father. And he finishes his work and ascends back to heaven to be united with his Father. Jesus is not cut off today. But in the moment of the cross, that's what's happening. He's taking our punishment so that we could be brought near. And so Paul's saying, do you not remember that story? Do you not remember that that's your salvation and that's your hope? That you were cut off, but now you're brought near. Now you are one with Christ. How could you divide him off again? He's not divided. And then he says, was Paul crucified for you? These leaders that you say that you follow and belong to, were they crucified to pay the price for your sins? No. He's saying you have one and only one Savior, Jesus. It's not me. Jesus laid down his life for you. Why would you belong to anyone else? He brings us back to the cross. Octavius Winslow, an old theologian, says this about the cross. This is a lengthy quote, but I found it moving. A moving description of the cross to my heart. Here's what he says. He said, The death of Jesus laid the foundation of grace. Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of blood that is seen. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. It's here, the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too, the weary spirit may bring its burden. The broken spirit, its sorrow. The guilty spirit, its sin. The backsliding spirit, it's wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor, guilty sinner. What more could he have done than this? No one has done this for you but Jesus. 
No one, no one has given themselves like this but Jesus. If that's who Jesus is and that's what he's done for us, how could we ever look to anyone else? Paul brings us back to the cross again and again and again. He invites us this morning as a church susceptible to division to say, come again and look at the cross. Remember the invitation of the gospel to repent of your sins and believe in this Jesus who was crucified in your place, who bore your sins on his shoulders. He says, come look at the cross and remember that nothing in all of the world, however tempting, compares with Christ. Nothing. He loves you like no one else. So why run anywhere else? May we see the cross and respond how Peter did to Jesus when he says, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Why follow or pledge allegiance or say we belong and divide? Why say we belong to anyone else but Jesus? Like Martin Luther, Martin Luther when he heard that some of the, the early Christians during the Reformation were starting to be called Lutherans, some of the first Protestants were being called Lutherans. Martin Luther himself was appalled at this. Here's what he said. He said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Why would anyone trade the name of Jesus for mine. It's not my teaching. I wasn't crucified for anybody. He's saying again with, the, with Paul, look to Christ who was crucified for you. Friends, if you have lost your affection for Jesus, you are invited intentionally this morning to look again at the cross, to gaze upon your Savior crucified for you, and if as you gaze and you look at the cross, it still does nothing to, to stir your affections for Jesus, keep looking. And don't look away until your heart is moved. It's what we need. It's the solution to all of our division. All of our disunity is to collectively gaze at the cross of Christ until our hearts are stirred and moved and we realize there's no one like him. No one compares with this Jesus. No one loves me like him. This is what Paul says. This is what we need. He says, too, were any of you baptized in another name? No. He's essentially saying you, you were saved and you were baptized as a public identifying mark that you are with Jesus and his people. And here's the truth, is that literally everything we would ever hope to find by dividing we're guaranteed to find in the gospel. Everything we'd hope to find by identifying with different labels, right? That purpose, that sense of belonging, that safety, that sense of being a part of something bigger, of having a mission, of having a people, of having something to look at and say, this is the reason why everything's going wrong. To having a leader we could truly trust. All of those things we look for. We're guaranteed to find in the gospel. 
Jesus himself provides all of those things for us and many more. And so Paul makes his appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul could have used a lot of, a lot of different words here, but this word that he used for be united is one word. And it's a, it's, a, it's a surgical term that is meant to refer to when two bones are broken or when one bone is broken. And it needs to be set back in place. He says, be united. You are a broken bone right now. Be united back together as the one bone that you already are. He could have chose any word, but he chose this one. And I think that's intentional. I don't know if you ever had to have a broken bone set back in place before. I have not. So I don't know how much it hurts, but I can imagine it hurts a lot. I imagine it's very painful to have a broken bone set back into place. And this is the word that Paul used to say, when brothers and sisters in Christ are divided, he's saying, be united back together, which is not going to be a smooth and easy process. That's going to be painful. That's going to require some humility, some repentance, some forgiveness, and ultimately some time heal. Because a, a broken bone, once it's set back in place, takes time to fuse back together. But there's also something implied in this that we don't have to accomplish unity. If we are one broken bone, we'll, we're still the same bone. We don't have to be, take two bones and become one bone. No, we are, we are the same bone that needs to be united back together and live as we already are. And this is the witness of the New Testament, that it is Christ's and his work on the cross that has already united his people. Every single one of us in this room this morning, if we are a follower of Jesus, we are united to one another, period. The question is, will we walk in unity? Will we walk in unity with one another? He says, be of the same mind. The same judgment, essentially saying this, have the same goals and the same agreement about truth. To be a united church family means we are all headed in the same direction. We all have the same goal of following Jesus and proclaiming the good news to the nations and loving one another in the process. And we are all in agreement on what the truth is. We are like a chorus all singing from the same page of music. We have different voices. Maybe some of us can harmonize. Some of us can't. But some of us still try. But we're all on the same page together. We're all in agreement on what the gospel is and on truth is. It's one of the reasons why within a local church, a statement of faith is so necessary for us to come together and explicitly say, we unite together on truth, on this truth. We don't just come in here and say, just believe whatever you want and be a part of this. No, let's be united together on what the Bible says, on what the gospel is. Let's be of the same mind together. Let's be united relationally, not competing with one another for status, but recognizing that all the status we could ever want, we have in Christ so we can love. We can forgive one another. 
We don't have to compete. And when we agree on truth, we learn to disagree on opinions. We're really bad at this because we've come to think that our opinions are truth. Our opinions are normal. Anything else is weird or wrong. Some of us are way too competitive about our opinions. And some of you that know me, you're like, yeah, Nick, you. You are way too competitive about your opinions. I am. It's become a joke with my wife. I, I, have, a, I have an immediate, bold opinion on everything instantly, even if I know nothing about it. And I will defend it until I'm blue in the face. And then eventually come to realize, oh, I was wrong, but now I'm just back. Now I'm the same way on this side about my opinions. And we do that. But to do that breeds a, 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 a posture of division. But when we can agree on truth and be united and firm on that, we learn how to disagree and still be united because of the gospel. This is what Paul's doing. He sees division and he preaches the gospel because he knows this, and we need to know this too, that to try to accomplish unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ without the gospel being the thing that does it, it will never be true unity. It won't. It'll be a more shallow agreement to not fight, to not be mean, to just think the same. But the gospel, the message of Jesus can unite everyone from any background, any difference, any opinion, any denominational background. When we can come together and agree on the gospel message of Jesus Christ that unites us, we can embody the kind of unity Paul is urging us. The, the truth is, most of us won't believe that until we get to heaven and see, oh, when he said every tribe, tongue, people, and language, he actually meant every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's here. We are united forever and ever because of Jesus. Let me close with this. This is Philippians chapter 2. One of the most beautiful sections in all of Scripture. It says this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, already yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father.
That's how Jesus loves us. And he says, this mind is already yours in Christ Jesus. Will we walk in it? Let's pray together.